0: I've looked at challenges and opportunities as things to leap at, not to be afraid, to believe that you're gonna find your way through, that you'll figure out what you need. Whatever it is you don't know, you'll figure it out and you'll have to figure it out. So be prepared for that and to try to understand understand from the sort of near point of departure what you think the big risks are and what you what you think are gonna be the big challenges along the way and try to maybe not have an answer uh, or a solution, but at least to know that you have the um, ingredients that you're gonna to need to come up with the solution so that you're not gonna wind up staring at, staring into the abyss and have no answer.
1: Because if, if you get there, you're in real trouble. This week's guest is Michael Plitkins, the co-founder and co coder of Spatial Inc, the immersive audio startup that's redefining human experiences by creating virtual soundscapes where we work, where we play and where we stay. In this interview, Michael takes us on a serendipitous journey through his life, a life defined by his willingness to embrace challenges, the courage to confront uncertainty and trust in his ferocious independence. We discuss the trajectory of his fascinating career in software engineering, how his appreciation for and experience in design opened doors to his first role as an engineer, working across some groundbreaking technologies in VR and voice and iconic companies from Netscape to Nest. In 27 minutes, Michael discusses the the genesis of his idea for creating Spatial, when he discovered that no immersive audio solution existed to deliver the experience he sought. Michael describes how he and his team are breaking down traditional audio barriers, taking audio to new levels, and allowing a community of creators to use Spatial tools to unleash their creative soundscapes as part of their designs michael and his team poised to reimagine immersive audio that will change how we experience community spaces like retail hospitals entertainment spaces and even the office finally thanks to walter warzoa for the recommendation now on with the show michael welcome uh, to the impossible network it's uh, an absolute pleasure to have you here thank you so this will be fun Let's get started. So I've managed to read a fair bit about your extraordinary journey as an engineer to your current focus as a co-founder of Spatial and co-coder as your intent on reinventing sound. What I've had a real challenge with is finding anything substantial about your backstory uh, and your early years. So I just wonder if you, maybe you could give and start by giving us a little bit of background to where you're we born and raised and how you're we're always interested to understand how a guest's parents support their guidance or direction affected their journey to where they are today and also the impact of siblings. So maybe you could just enlighten us on that, those early years.
0: Yeah, sure. I, I was born in Seattle, Washington and at a relatively uh, young age, our family moved to uh, rural like upstate New York. And that's where I, uh, my sister and I I grew up and we did have a a brief departure to the UK in 1977-78. Which part of the UK? In a tiny hamlet called Colden Common outside of Winchester. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And that was uh, definitely an interesting experience and had a a definite large part, even though it was only nine or ten months time, something like that, in giving me a much broader view of the world and how things are different. We traveled uh, extensively through through Europe while we were there and got to see a lot of pretty amazing things that my sister and I both held on to well beyond our time there. Uh, we attended public school, which is, again, a very different experience from what we had in, in the U.S. And yeah, so that was a, a big thing that I've always remembered. And then finished high school in the uh, uh, Ontario school district in the Casco Mountains. Then I did have a brief academic career.
1: Just a sort of uh, observation, how, well, a question, how long did you spend in the UK? I was
0: from 11, 1177 until sometime in in June of, of 1978. So
1: not long enough to pick up the accent. I was
0: just wondering, no, I was trying to detect. <laughs> no, my sister and I both, when we returned to the US, we had <clears throat> British accents and I can put it on whenever I Feel like it, but yeah, and then it lasted for a little while and then they went away. But I mean, it was a, a deeply immersive experience, and I repeated that again later on in, in Spain. So, anyways,
1: so in terms of your parents, what took them there, and were they was there any sort of influence in terms of your the focus that you've taken in life and in education? I mean, clearly, sort of more math and science it was would appear to be the sort of the journey you took through education were they highly influential on that or was it just in that sort of natural curiosity
0: my dad was an engineer at ibm
1: and ibm is also known as as i've been down, and hence why winchester because they had a big office down in uh, near southampton in hersley yes yes yeah i've been yes. there yeah
0: yep i actually visited there in 2019 visited to uh, that 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 space, which is, I mean, it's a fantastic, beautiful mm. space with my family. But yeah, IBM brought us to to the Hersley office, and then and then we went back to our home again in upstate New York. My mother was a librarian in my high school and middle school, so she always had a, a big thing for reading and all that kind of stuff, which which is a great encouragement to uh, to explore other places through books, other experiences, mm. and they they always. They kind of just let my sister and I find our way along Mm. and do whatever we found interesting. And, and this was again, back in the times when it was, okay, kids go out and play and we'll, you'll hear mom's voice when it's time to come home in the evening. Right. And we would just go out and do whatever with friends and uh, we could roam freely, explore. We, it was a a very kind of country, I guess it would be suburban in in a certain context, but also uh, my parents did split and my uh, mom and stepdad uh, wound up at, at his family farm, which was about. I don't know, half hour, forty minutes away from my dad's place, and so that was another whole different experience growing up on a 150 acres of space, mm-hmm. and what uh, that enabled us to go do. So, mm-hmm.
1: it sounds like a very safe but yet adventurous upbringing, and so allowing you to allow your imagination to run riot. Yeah, definitely
0: so. And it was interesting because I wanted—I've always been like ferociously independent, and. Don't know exactly where that comes from, but I would want to go and do things on my own time schedule, whatever. And a lot of time, you know, I couldn't drive when I was twelve, right? <laughs> so uh, I had to get around. So that that turned into a tremendous interest in in cycling. And so I would bike like mad, like all over the place and explore and get from from home to school to job at a young age and back again just cycling all around so that was another way to explore see what's what.
1: And aside from the sort of the time you spent in the UK were there any other sort of pivotal moments or memories that defined your childhood that you think influenced where you are today that you can recount?
0: One was I mean certainly was when I was in sixth grade, a friend of mine who I hadn't actually been in touch with for some time, but spent quite a bit of time with in the, at South by Southwest in Austin, this, this past March, he said, look, I found this thing in the school library, it's a computer, let's go check it out. And somehow we managed, we escaped from class and went down there and started, and it was an apple II that the library had recently oh, acquired. Wow. And we started just typing away and exploring the thing and trying to figure out how to modify the games. And honestly, it was that one thing that turned into what has become my entire career. I can call it a career. I I've I've never had a career. (laughs) I just leaped
1: from one thing to the next, Mm. but. But driven by that sort of that pivotal serendipitous moment of encountering the Apple II and mm -hmm. uh, all thanks to Steve Jobs and uh, was. Yeah. And then it's been exploring that frontier and many
0: others, but still ever since. Uh Uh-huh. Wonderful.
1: Okay. So given that early interest in sixth grade and computers, what was school like for the young Michael? School was, it was fun and friends
0: and doing the work that needed to be done. But I never considered myself a, like a great academic or whatever. I just sort of, I would just do what I had to do and do my homework in the car on the way to school and whatever and read the textbook the day before the test and take the test and do well and but i often had other priorities and <laughs> discovered that yeah fully okay. when i got to college
1: okay so with that exposure and encounter with the the apple too were your early ambitions say, this is what I want to do with my career that I want to be? Because at that point, there there weren't that many sort of obvious jobs that were going to, you couldn't sort of uh, imagine the way the world would expand and the opportunities that would become available for engineers and, com- and computer scientists at that time. So what were your early thoughts? And I suppose what aligned to that is what led you to SUNY Albany back then? <laughs> or was it a kick in the backside from your father? No, honestly, I, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And ah, so did I. I had exactly the same ambition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it didn't and, work out.
0: <laughs> and some of that again came out of the UK and Spitfires and Hurricane, sort of the revered status that those things have in culture. And um, uh, yeah, I read about Chuck Yeager and stuff. And anyway, so I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and then I wound up getting glasses. That was the end of that so the computer turned into this interesting place to explore and i um again i never really had any particular career ambitions or goals it was i kind of stumbled from one thing to the next but that said i did early on figure out that i had a certain knack for twisting the machine to do what i wanted it to do i did uh Bunch of things when when i was in high school i did hardware projects and oh really all kinds of stuff and, and i thought i was going to be a hardware engineer and i wound up i before i went to suny albany i went to uh, clarkson university for one semester but that's where i discovered i wasn't going to be a hardware engineer because that requires far more precision than i was into i don't like following piles and piles of rules and if you're going to do hardware there's a lot of things that you have to adhere to and then Contrary to what you might think, I'm not a natural at, at math. I've figured out a lot of stuff along the way, but I found geometry interesting. I, I really <clears> enjoyed <throat> geometry and proofs and that kind of thing, which again goes along with logic and what you might do with computer programming, whatever. But math by itself was not particularly interesting. It's more of a tool that's necessary to get something done. So I went to Clarkson university for a semester, then decided I was going to be hardware engineer and there were various other things. And I said, you know what? I'm found my way to SUNY a. over Christmas break, really. I, I kind of casually submitted whatever academic credentials I had to that point to their to somebody in an office there over an afternoon, or I guess it was morning, over Christmas break. And I said, I'd like to go to school here if I could. And they were like, okay, well, can we get back to you after lunch? And uh, I said, sure thing. And after lunch, they, I, I don't know, I guess I went back there because I didn't have a phone at the time. It was mm. 1988, I guess, 87, 86, but they're like, okay, yeah, you're in. That was it. So I did attend uh, SUNY for three semesters, but again, it was when I discovered that I could audit classes and that meant you could go to the classes you wanted to go to, but you didn't have to take any tests or anything. You could just show up learn what you wanted and come and go. I thought that was the best thing ever. So that's what I did for my um, final semester. And then I moved to Spain. So mm. that was my
1: brief. Well, I had a question about, were there any influential sort of mentors or teachers that were encouraging you or giving you guidance along the way? I don't know, possibly what led you to go to Spain? Yeah, the Spain thing was a definite sort of
0: left-hand turn. So I was working for a professor in the chemistry department. He had a, a little, what what is called a semiconductor theory lab, where he explored all kinds of stuff. And uh, as part of that, he had a number of computer systems that needed to be maintained and they were connected to the larger network at the school. And um, his name was Dr. Larry Snyder, super smart guy, really nice guy. And, um, you know, at one point I was taking, I was the very beginning of calc two, I didn't enjoy calculus and the calc two, it got even more painful where you were expected to memorize all these integrals and be able to recall them on tests and whatever. And I never memorized anything. That was not my style. I would remember the, the fundamentals that you needed to understand to get from a basic thing to a solution. And so I was always challenged in taking tests because I would never have everything in memory. I would just, figure it all out from the fundamentals in real time to answer the questions on tasks, which are not always up against time. And so when they said you have to memorize all these integrals, I, I went to the, to the teaching assistant and, you know, I, I first I went to Dr. Snyder and I said, Dr. Snyder, they're expecting me to memorize all these integrals for Calp two. Do you remember all this stuff? Cause you, you do real math all the time. And he said, no, I don't memorize. And I don't remember any of that stuff. He's like, he pointed to a bookshelf and pulled down a book and he pointed to, there were all these tables inside the front and back covers of you know, that were these integrals. And he said, when I need this stuff, I go to the book and I grab it out of the book. And mm-hmm. so I went to the TA for the course. And I said, so Dr. Snyder told me he doesn't remember any of the stuff. He goes and pulls down this book when he needs it. So I, can I just bring the book with me? And they said, and they, and they said, no, absolutely not. And I, and I said, well, thank you very much. I think we're done here. So Dr. Snyder was certainly an inspiration to, uh, do the right thing, do what's appropriate. Don't just do whatever, because somebody says you should do it. So, another yeah, example,
1: so. if you're ferocious independence.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So what led you to Spain and where?
0: So I have a sister who's also very independent and she wound up doing a, um, a semester in high school overseas in, in, in Spain. After that, she like lived in Japan for years and all kinds of stuff. So I went over and visited her in the summer, summer of 1980 seven in between. So after my first, I guess, year in college and uh, I wound up beating friend of hers and she became a girlfriend of mine. And uh, anyway, so I quit school, moved to Spain to hang out there. And uh, eventually wound up working at a graphic design school that had, they had both traditional graphic design wall, traditional kinds of tools and things that you use for, for art and design. And then they also had a bunch of computers that they used for doing and this was 1988 for teaching that stuff through these sort of brand new tools and they needed someone to help keep things on the rails in the various classrooms full of these computers and
1: yeah the early days of was, was it the design tool was it quark
0: yeah yeah so they at first they just had a bunch of amiga computers which was super cutting edge at the time and then yeah they did Wind up getting a bunch of Macs and and yes, you know certainly Quark and and tools like that were uh, <laughs> in Illustrator. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: I mean I've looked at your um, LinkedIn profile and get glean as much information as can. I'm trying to self-identify because we like to explore serendipity in the podcast and where serendipity has played its part and the opportunities and the the road you've taken. Where it might, it sounds to me like you're because of your ferocious independence, you are certainly prepared and have the courage to take the road less travelled and go where your instinct tells you. But looking at your LinkedIn, you've had this fascinating career, I think you'd probably say in software engineering, and worked on a whole number of groundbreaking technologies in VR and voice. And you've worked with iconic companies and individuals from Netscape and Nest and people like Mark Andreessen and Tony Fidel. At what point did you... I'm from Spain, working in a sort of a, with that design graphics company. What led you to take, start to take follow that specific path into engineering that opened the, the doors to these really interesting, interesting trajectory that you've been on?
0: So I've always had an interest in design, in good design, in quality design, aesthetics, mm-hmm. and certainly when Macintosh was launched and even before that Lisa from Apple, they were clearly groundbreaking designs and departures and innate to, to them. They had the design and it was there in every, in every aspect from deep internals of software, the aesthetics, bringing topography to, to the mainstream on computers. I made a copycat program on a Commodore 64 that looked like Mac paint and had mm-hmm. a font editor and things like that were built in. So I always had this, this interest in design. And so going to a graphic design school that was using these modern tools in Spain was to me a, a great natural place to go. And along the way, so the school had, they had two computers that actually one or two of these very expensive computers called super from a company called Spaceward microsystems out of the UK that. That they use for teaching 3d graphics modeling and some animation and they they would basically buddy up two students on a computer sort of time sharing it to teach this course and so i believe it was two computers that they had so they could teach four students at a time in this course and i sort of pointed them at the other three classrooms that they had full of these amiga computers and i said you could have one person per computer you could have 60 students if you wanted doing 3D graphics. Let me sort of show you how you could do that. And so they said, okay, as part of what you're doing here, go ahead and you can work on designing a course to, to teach this stuff. And so I wound up finding tools, programs that they could use for teaching. And along the way there had, there was a, a program that I was already aware of. It was called, called Caligari that was very expensive. And we, they said, okay, go ahead, purchase it. We bought it. I started using it and it turned out to be, it had some bugs. And I wound up visiting, I went back to the US and the headquarters in New York, met with them, and I kind of said, Hey, what's up? Why are there these bugs? And when are you going to resolve them? And they said, Well, at the moment, we don't have engineers. And I was like, Oh, that would explain things. And me being a punk kid, I said, Let me fix it. And they kind of were like, Okay, (laughs) well, I mean, I think they basically said to themselves, what do we have to lose here, we don't have anyone to can do this stuff. And they agreed. They lent me an accelerator card that you had to plug into the computer to be able to run the software and gave me the source code on floppy disks. And, um, I went back to, to Spain with that in hand and proceeded to fix the bugs in question, added wow. new features. I used the classroom environment as a testing environment for the features that I added and verifying that I had fixed bugs and then. From there, they basically, after six months of doing that and doing three software releases from Spain, they basically said, okay, we need you here in the US. And that's how I landed my first like real engineering job. And that's when I informed my folks, I was not returning to school, which was not met with enthusiasm. But I, I sort of pointed out like my view of diploma was that got you that first job and look, I just got that first job. And I remember, I remember sort of conversation along the lines of how do you know, like, what do you know about 3d graphics? And then I don't, but I've used this, I've used various programs for doing this for some time now. And, um, and I've managed to convince some folks that I do know what I'm doing. So I'm going to go off and do this now. And, and so that was that was the real beginning of the beginning. And from then on, I've, I've looked at challenges and opportunities as things to leap at, not to be afraid, to believe that you're going to find your way through, that you'll figure out what you need, whatever it is you don't know, you'll figure it out and you'll have to figure it out. So be prepared for that and to try to understand, understand from the sort of near point of departure, what you think the big risks are and what you what you think are going to be the big challenges along the way and try to maybe not have an answer uh, or a solution, but at least to know that you have the um, ingredients that you're going to need to come up with the solution so that you're not going to wind up staring at staring into the abyss and have no answer. Because if,
1: if you get there, you're in real trouble. Sounds like so a good example of first principle thinking in action. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that sort of attitude that's obviously been part of your personal career armory, let's say, it's taking you through this really interesting sort of journey. Because you could, obviously in those early days, computing and where software engineering was sort of limited, but when you were early into things like VR and voice. I mean, was there an intent or was it just, again, more serendipitous that led you to these opportunities? That you took and embrace these challenges? Or was there an initial sort of spark in something that ignited your curiosity in these technologies? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in in cool new
0: things, but not to, a, not to what I would think of like a dangerous degree where you're just looking at shiny new objects for their own sake. But mm-hmm. I think probably the main thing is, where can I learn from? Like, what is something that I don't know much about, but I'd really like to, or that it should be, it should be somehow valuable to understand something. And, and so going, so yeah, learning all about this 3D graphics was really cool and fun and then this whole web-based VR stuff popped up in the mid to late nineties, VRML, ML, et cetera. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I've never been attracted to like big hardware solutions to problems, like. I remember like silicon graphics computers were like super cool and all this stuff, but mm-hmm. I couldn't have one in my in my office at home because they're way too expensive. Ironically, I do now have one. One of the <laughs> last of the line visualization supercomputers that they made. I have it for fun, but that's an aside. So I always liked very clever software solutions to problems and and VRML was really interesting. And the company that I was at was making tools for, for creating VRML experiences and had a, a bit of a browser, but there was another program that was the, um, Net, like Netscape plugin browser that everyone used. And it was, it was really cool. And I was, look, you know, going through their website one day and looking at, and I'm trying, i trying, I was basically lo- do like doing compatibility testing, loading content that I could find from wherever into our, our software to see what we could do with it. And I r- ran into a whole number of, of pieces of content on, on this website, a company called paper software, and it wouldn't load. And I looked at the inside the files and they weren't VRML files at all. They were like open inventor files and, and stuff like that. And then one of the business development people at the company I was at the time had it, interacted with these folks. And I remember he told me about it and I was like, do you have like a contact for somebody at paper? He gave me a business card for this one uh, guy, Greg Scallon. And, um, uh, and I just kind of called and said, guys, I'm, I'm like, like, this content you have that it's not even, it's not even like YAML content and doesn't, it's, it doesn't work in other uh, tools. And the answer I got was, well, it works great in ours. And (laughs) I was like, oh, that's another take on this whole thing. Uh, And then I I like flipped over the business card or something. And it said, yeah, paper software for Deming street in Woodstock, New York. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like that's where I grew up. Like there's a technology wow. company in Woodstock. Are you kidding me? And from that moment, I kind of set about working with them and, and trying to get the ear of the CEO, whose name was Mike McHugh and he and I had a couple of conversations and it was very interesting. And I remember he called me once, just, just like out of the blue, he called. He was like, Michael, just think of the craziest thing that could happen to my company, like, and then pregnant pause, be like, it's happening. It's like, okay, I don't know what that means. And anyways, eventually I went home for Christmas. This was 1995. And I, uh, set about finally meeting with Mike and we spent about four hours one evening just talking about stuff. And he explained like this user interface company and that like they stumbled into this whole VRML 3D thing, but it's not really what Mm -hmm. they do. And, uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm like, we got to figure this out. I need to work here. And, uh, he was like, okay, yeah, great. We'll figure it out. he's like, and by the way, remember that like crazy thing that's going to happen to my company. And by this time I was kind of done with Silicon Valley, by the way, I hadn't, was like looking for avenues to escape. And so moving back home to New York anyways, I thought would be interesting. He goes, so that, that thing, that crazy thing is we're being bought by Netscape and we're all moving to Mountain View.
1: Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Straight yeah. back, yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I see. I was like, well, okay, let's do it anyways. So that happened and that's how I wound up being at Netscape mm. and um and it was a tremendous experience and the folks at Paper
1: were amazing still a good friend. Why did eight. Netscape want to buy them? What were their plans for integrating into the browser? For? VRML
0: was a big thing at the time and Mike was he was absolutely all about UI technologies and mm-hmm. fresh thinking, like really fresh thinking. And I think, I think it was, honestly, I think it was Mike McHugh, that's what mm-hmm. they really wanted. Because um, around that time, understandably,
1: be around the time when Internet Explorer was tearing Netscape, Netscape's market share apart.
0: Yeah. So it, yeah, we all went through the browser wars and mm-hmm. all the stuff, Mike was a, a big part of the whole doj effort and kind of after all that all the dust settled he wound up um, leaving netscape and everyone knew that there was going to be some new thing he was going to go off and do and he wound up recruiting recruiting some of us uh, a bunch of us from paper to go off and do that that next thing some of us did wind up following along that was a whole interesting process uh by and of itself, and then wound up being part of the founding team at Tell Me Networks um, Mm -hmm. is the follow on thing.
1: So, and you've said beside your ferocious independence, your embrace of challenges and opportunities, your first principle thinking, there's an invention, an inventive side to you, and you founded a spatial essentially. From what I've read, which seems like many founders to scratch your own itch. Could you talk about that moment in your backyard when the initial idea, that spark of an idea emerged? Yeah, sure. So we
0: had purchased a a pretty decent sized piece of property here in in the East Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. So you never really uh,
1: did it. You didn't escape um, the valley.
0: (laughs) No, No. (laughs) it was a paper for four months in New York and then it was all back to, yeah. back to the area. So we purchased this nice piece of property and, um, we had enjoyed traveling. We, my wife and I, before our son was born, we'd been to Bora, so Tahiti and, and, um, we'd been to, you know, Hawaii a number of times and all this kind of thing. And we had found some folks that could transform a part of our property into sort of a Pacific Island. And it's, it was, I thought I'd, I was pretty certain we found the right people to really do a convincing mm-hmm. job, right? Make it. A really amazing space and we were just starting the construction on that and this is all kind of intertwined so i'm going to diverge a little Mm -hmm. bit but my mother-in-law wound up having congestive heart failure just after thanksgiving in 2016 Mm -hmm. so the family we all moved down to basically my wife's hometown pacific grove temporarily and so going in and out of hospitals and all this kind of stuff had plenty of time to to think about things and to a bunch of things that were all, all coming together. One was this construction project. Another one was we were in these various rented homes and things would pop up. Like we had one house where there was a beautiful gas fireplace. It was the first gas fireplace I ever seen that looked convincing, right? But it didn't have the right sound, but there was a Sonos player right next to it that could produce sound. And I was like, what if that thing could supply the sound that the fireplace needs to finish the job and make it be convincing? Yeah. How could I do that? There was a TV on the wall that was off most of the time, but why couldn't it be playing sound, contributing to the environment while the screen was off? Cause the TV's actually yeah. always on, right? It's just the the panel's not on. There was this going in and out of hospitals and the horrible sound experience that was in there, right? And why would anyone, why should anyone that's in a hospital. Feel comfortable at any level, right? It doesn't matter who you are—like doctor, mm-hmm. visitor, nurse, patient. Like it's just a horrible place to be. I mean, just to be honest. So, I thought about our home project and these negative sounds and the missing sounds. And I said to myself, "That's what we need at home. That's what's going to. That's what's going to bridge the gap." And from when we were at, t- at tell Me, we had a, a huge creative and, and sound team that was trying to bring very high quality audio across traditional telephone handsets, which are eight kilohertz, mm-hmm. eight bit mono, MULA compressed sound. It's like super challenging, but we did everything we could to make it great. So I wound up thinking like, okay, great. If we can bring really cool sound to, to this project that we're building... How would I go about doing that? And I thought about it and I was like, there must be some stuff out there that I can just go buy that'll make it happen. So I wound up calling Gary Clayton, who ran the creative team at tell me, and this is long after that time, but Mm. I, I called Gary, he has a tremendous background, audio engineering and sound, many other things now. And, uh, I said, Gary, I need to go do this, like this whole thing to my, this big outdoor project do you know what, how to approach this? And he was like, well, it have been out of that game for a while, but I'll tell you what, there's this guy, Walter, who's mm. down in LA and he does amazing things with sound. He's highly respected. He and team created the Intel, like, right. Mm. It's like, here's Walter's number. Just go call him. He'll be happy to chat. And so I did. And I called and I laid out the same thing that I just, you know, talked to Gary about, and he doesn't know me from Adam, but he basically said, well, given what you're talking about, he's like, don't do the hardware thing you were thinking about with a mixing board. Like you can use a computer to do that. And I was like, yeah, but that's going to wind up being some kind of solution that eventually become fragile. And I'm going to be the only mm-hmm. person that knows how to use the thing. And and I, I don't think so. So he said, "Well, then." then no, there isn't something you can just like go buy off the shelf. He's like, we should probably just go start a company and build it, which had not at all been on my Mm. radar or thought, not even remotely. But then from that moment on, the conversation took a turn and I started thinking, well, okay, so I do understand what you can do if you properly capitalize something. And so then the idea got to be a lot bigger. We talked for maybe an hour and change and then went off and spent a few months thinking about how, you know, what, what, if you actually built a company to go do this, what could you, what, what would I want to do? What kinds of mm-hmm. things could we incorporate to make, not just the thing that I'm building at home, but to be a great experience, but to make a, a whole ecosystem of, of things tools that were available and the idea got to be a lot bigger and then once i'd really kind of settled on how to go do it all and it's really bringing together stuff from back in the rml days evolution of 3d graphics that i was i'm very well aware of that in my opinion just like the audio world made a turn somewhere and did not have a similar evolution and again tools for building content Three dimensional content. It all, it all, basically all these things from past all kind of fused Mm -hmm. together into this new thing. And that's when I called Tony, Tony Fidel, who I'd Mm -hmm. worked with quite a lot at Nest, my previous company. And I was like, Tony, I, I got to go do this thing, and I need some help. I'm a kind of officially a terrible manager, but I, I need to build this, and I'm going to need help with priorities, um, product strategy all this kind of stuff. I'm an engineer. That's not my bag. And, um, he sent an email to Colin Paccararu and, and myself and said, go talk. And, uh, that was the beginning of the next beginning. So.
1: And Colin was at Nest at the time?
0: No, Colin had worked at Apple and Handspring and Apple again, did the work on the first smartphone stuff, really with the trio mm-hmm. products at Handspring. And then I uh, went up back at Apple and, and working on a. a bunch of things that became Apple TV underpinnings of health kit and AirPlay and things like that. And, um, he was doing his own thing when Steve jobs health took a, a bad turn, mm-hmm. and he wound up, he wound up leaving Apple and, and doing independent projects for a while. And then, yeah, we got connected and, and I'm not one to do market analysis on anything that I've ever done. It's always an intuition that there's something here that's worth doing, go do it and we'll something good will come out of it. So I didn't sort of, I didn't lead the witness in any way. on what this whole project might be. I let him go and with some good discussion and understanding of what, what I was talking about, he kind of went off and did his own due diligence on the whole thing and came back and said, I think there's not just a business here, but potentially a very big business. So can then in like one hand giveth and the other taketh away. So while he's like, there's. He thinks there's a very, potentially a very big business. He also then immediately started convincing me that I should not go do this, that I had no idea what I was getting myself into, which he was hundred percent correct about. Mainly because the, I've, I've done startups my entire life. The big ones that I've been at have been sort of Goldilocks stories where getting funding was not a challenge that, I mean, the story with Nest and getting funding is kind of legendary, whereas the landscape had changed in terms of VC world. And uh, what we were doing was really kind of in a different direction. And um, and anyways, it was a challenge, but we finally found our way through. It just took blood, sweat and tears. So.
1: so sound isn't something I don't think people think much about in terms of designing. We're so used to our encounter with sound as what comes across usually today, either across our speakers in our home, the the Dolby experience in the cinema, what you have in your car or what you have in your ears. And it all tends to be what we believe to be just a an evolution of just cl- clarity. And I don't think people think about it in relation to the dimensions that you're trying and what you have unlocked with spatial. I mean, I think everyone would probably consider Dolby to be the, the pinnacle of quality sound. But perhaps you could explain the significant differences and what immersive what you're doing with immersive sound and how it enhances not just your personal experience but environmental experiences
0: yeah so you're right sound is sort of taken for granted i i think i don't know what the right term is but it's often this sort of like oh right yeah we should have some sound here too as Mm -hmm. opposed to front and center in in many things i mean in the world of of, uh, cinema like that's changed drastically. And now sound is thought of absolutely Mm -hmm. as a a central element, but in, yeah, and many other things, it's what gets bolted on uh, later. And I I kind of alluded to it before sound and audio design has has gone. It's been very traditional over, over the years. And certainly people have done spatial audio for some time, like 40 years, people have kind of experimented with it and made some really cool things. But, and again, going back to sort of my three months of rumination, I was like, you know what? And I did not do it like a competitive landscape analysis or anything like that. I basically took it as faith when Walter said, no one's really doing this. Go figure it out. I said, okay, that's all I need to know. And so then I looked at it from my point of view of how do you create a complete end-to-end solution so that people that have a creative intent and they understand that, that having sound to be a great element to add to some experience or in some cases, be the entire experience. How Mm. can you enable that to happen and not saddle them with rigid requirements about, you know, even stereo sound, generally speaking, there is a single location where you're, where you're listening to it, that is the great experience and as you deviate from that sweet spot as it's called, the experience breaks down. So how do you just make it so that you can. Some speakers because this is all about um, shared experience. It's not about Mm -hmm. an isolated experience with headphones. People can be together in a space and they're all wearing headphones. Like that's still an isolating experience, right? Let's get rid of the headphones entirely. Let's get rid of gear, devices, whatever. To have people that are in together in a space, there's an experience that's going on, and sound should be a part of it front and center, or again, as I said, could be the entire thing and enable people to do that in a way that is friction free in terms of, again, going back to like no requirements for how you place speakers, place them wherever it makes sense, wherever you can. We need to know where they really are, because we do have to apply a whole bunch of math in order to project a sound into that environment. And knowing where the speakers are is an incredibly important part of that. So install speakers, pick whatever works for you, and then enable really great audio creation to be something that you don't have to be in the trade, right? You can be a creative individual who knows what they want to do and bring to them tools that are very accessible so that you don't have to have that studio background and understand the physics of what happens to sounds as they're moving around, or they move very far away, or they get very close, do those kinds of things automatically so that you can get a great experience without having to have that deep understanding. Um, and think of this sound as fundamentally not about a bunch of channels that are being mixed together, but as these real world objects that have these properties to them and behaviors and, and they can move all around and you can, and you're composing everything in real time and it's not on a rigid timeline it can mm-hmm. be, if you want to do it that way, that's fine. But we bring a lot of tools to the game that, that um, well, yeah. You know, and again, if it, a lot of it has parallels to how gaming audio is done but we're trying to make this as something that's a lot simpler to do than under having all the understanding of how to run a gaming engine but again with a bunch of parallels but make things that can be or much more organic sounding that, that you can have some event occur within the simulation that causes some something to start happening and that thing can start not necessarily immediately at that moment but it can vary it can start five to 20 seconds from now and every time that event comes in that time can vary so that you don't have things again on this rigid timeline because that's not how nature works right things are things have their own free will things just happen when they they ought to where they feel like they should
1: so let's give it take a, a use case then i mean you're creating a suite of tools for people without the sort of the deep audio uh, creation experience to create immersive audio experiences in spaces. So whether it be, um, let's say, a, a retail space, an entertainment space, or even you mentioned a hospital earlier, can you give yourself a description of what impact that, that experience would be like and what the impact could have on people's, just their experience of navigating these spaces with your immersive audio? Sure. So.
0: Going to like the retail example, folks have talked endlessly recent times about retail is going to go away and all this stuff. And it's not, it's just not right. It's just that what you're going to a retail space for is, is shifted. And it's, it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily to make the purchase, but it's to explore and to understand what the offering is. And again, sound is something that if you have the right tools, the right kind of uh, ability to convey an experience through sound in a space by getting rid of a bunch of the traditional restrictions and you can, you can go into one of my favorite things is into like a car dealership as an example, right. And many automobile manufacturers have an association with motorsport and why not bring some of the experience that you might have if you were to go to, uh, a Mercedes uh, for, for, yeah, Mercedes has incredibly deep ties with, with motorsport, right. Formula one and, and all, and, uh, sports car racing, you know, all kinds of stuff. So why not bring some of that right into every dealership, right? And, Mm -hmm. and get the brand association that much deeper, because sound is an an incredibly impactful um, sense. Um, And it's primal kind of thing, right? It goes very deep. And again, if you reduce the restrictions, make it really easy to do and with proper tools, you can make it that much easier to make this kind of experience. Again, people have been doing immersive audio experiences for quite some time. It's just, it's been very challenging to do and very brittle. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we can do is by By abstracting the experience that you're creating from the physical hardware that's actually ultimately installed, you can make that experience transportable. So that traditionally immersive audio experiences are brittle. As Mm -hmm. soon as you change out speaker layouts and that kind of thing, your, the content that you've made has to be remastered, right? Which is remixing a whole bunch of tracks. And certainly again, tools have made that process get easier over time, but it's still very cumbersome. So, so great. You have... Going back to what you said about like Mercedes, if they have mm. a, an, ex, an experience made for a dealership, being able to transport that to other dealerships quickly and easily without having to mess around with the content is a, you know, could be a valuable thing. Mm. That's one of the things that we bring to
1: the table. From the way you describe it, it sounds like what you're doing is creating essentially a suite of tools to allow creative people to reimagine the audio experience of a brand in the same way that people have designed look and feel or designed let's say uh, digital experiences if in a digital space or a physical environment from let's say a uh, interior design standpoint the what you look at and what you touch and what you walk through you're creating giving a almost a palette for creators to reimagine what people the audible experiences of a brand or a space is that yes. fair? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, where would craters? If someone is working, I've I've given an example. It's it's funny. I went to um, an event, Electrify Expo here in Austin just before the holidays, and although EVs don't have sound, the Mercedes were there, BMW were there, Mini, you know, every brand you can imagine that's trying to sort of push apart from t- Tesla, push forward their. Uh, whole proposition on EVs. It was silent. And thinking back to it, there was a real opportunity there to engage and ignite people's imaginations, not just with the physical experience, but the audible experience as well. So something like that would be really interesting. How would people working in the space of, let's say, experiential marketing, which clearly this leads, opens avenues and pathways to that. How would they access your tools and, and get started.
0: Well, we announced on March 7th that, that everything we've been working on for the last effectively five years um, is now freely downloadable from spatialink.com. And so creative individuals and folks that just want to try it out can do so for free. You can download the, the, the creation tool we have called Studio, uh, the platform called Spatial Reality that, that does the real-time sound field creation and a control application that lets you control what it is you've built with studio in the physical space so Mm it's all freely downloadable and you can experiment to your heart's content
1: so what about the actual sort of creation of the uh, the, the, this this let's say the sound design where would people access if i wanted to create an experience so let's say if if it was to create this sense of being immersed in an F1 environment. How would I access that? Or would I have to create those myself? Or would it be something there's a library of a library available?
0: Yeah. So we do have a number of what we call shared scenes that are available to anyone that that gets the tools. And these are designed as as starting points to illustrate different kinds of experiences that that you can create. Um, and also for sort of creating creation stamp with starting point you can mm-hmm. you can modify them you can take things away you can add to them. I think for uh, motorsport specifically, you don't have a starting point shared scene but you know if, if you get your hands on audio samples, there are a number of of libraries that are out there that are that do have like you know, car sounds and stuff and then you can get could record sounds if you like. Get your get sounds as a starting point from wherever you you, you can or want to, and then you compose things together in the studio tool to create and space things out, and animate things, and and use that to make the ultimate experience from the sound files that are sort of the starting point.
1: I would expect that interior designers and architects must be really interested in this because, as obviously, there's a lot you talked about the. Retail experience is going to change coming out of COVID, and although a lot of businesses are tend to going back, their work experience is going to change dramatically. Surely, this is an amazing opportunity for for interior designers to reimagine the workspace as well to create a much more engaging, healthy environment.
0: Yeah, as we all know, the workplace, as an example, is changing, and the relationship that people have with with sort of employers and and workspaces is certainly evolving and. Making and, and you know from various contexts that we have had, companies are are well aware of this and are doing what they can to draw people back to the office for various reasons, all of which are good. And going back to, to in like design, interior design, and all that, there's a, um, a a company that that we have been working with for some time now, years that that does experiential and that's both indoor and outdoor, and uh, that company called Eight Inc. and um, I posed a question to Wilhelm Earl, who's the uh, Chief Experience Officer at Ape. Again, years ago, I said, you know, Wilhelm, what, from your roster of um, clients with this new tool in hand, which of them do you think would have an interest in adding this to the experiences that, that they, you know, create for their customers? And, and, you know, we thought briefly and said, every single one of them. And so it is, it can be impactful across all different kinds of scenarios and then going back to one that again goes back to the very beginning of the idea and that's that's healthcare this has always been something from the very beginning that i thought we could make a difference in and i didn't have any scientific viewpoint on it it was just make people feel better at the very least in these anxious settings which i was absolutely confident that that we could do and then it was again Back to Walter and sometime I don't remember maybe it was like a year after he and I had first chatted he said you know I also have this thing called health tunes that's mm-hmm. all about bringing um, music and not just music but in addition with sound that can be embedded in the music that can be used for s- various types of specific healing through, through music and sound and then once I learned about that I was like wow like so it's not just making people feel more relaxed to making people feel better, but you can actually apply medicine to through sound to, to make people get better. And so that's been a wonderful thing. And a, a great sort of addition to this entire thing is that capability. And, and it's, again, it's not just, it's not just us. It's not just our like aspiration it's happening now. We have wonderful partner, uh, Wellstar that is. Actually, using all of this in um, in hospitals currently for frontline workers to uh, to get better using music and and sound in 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 their hospital locations and the uh, the results have been tremendous. They're overwhelmed by the uh, the outcomes, the the improvements that, that that this can have. Wow,
1: it's so interesting that we we you know our news stream is so often full of the more the dystopian side of technology and the damaging impact of things like social media on people's mental health and rarely do we hear stories of how technology is making us healthier, is healing us and it's uplifting to actually hear you talk about this and to be aware of it and if more people could be aware of it and start working with it we could start to have a significant um, impact on just not the well-being of individuals in health and healing spaces like hospitals but also in the workspace. So I'm conscious of the time, and I want to get to the quickfire questions. And, we'll, and I should say, we'll share all the links to your tools that are available to designers and uh, creatives in the show notes. <clears throat> One f- just final question before we get to the quickfire. Obviously, you're, you are at the very start of what feels like the beginning, still the beginnings of this amazing audio journey. Do you have a sense of where you're going to be, would like to be in about 10 years with this? If you could fast
0: yeah i mean i love to bring people together in awesome shared spaces and remove some of the barriers that technology has honestly created i don't enjoy wearing headphones i rarely do (laughs) irony of ironies people walk around staring at their phones all the time and these devices and and there there are a number of things that that i absolutely want spatial not to be and uh, you know it's not about big data it's not about gathering, it's not about people as content, it's about truly social experiences as opposed to the online social spaces that are not always positive things. I think what we're doing can use it for, for real good.
1: Excellent. Okay. Quick five questions. What principles do you stand by? Do things that are worth doing and solve problems that are worth solving. Nicely put. We. I'm sure you've had to make some hard choices along the way. Might have been tough, but which might be tough at the time, but which ones looking back on it were the right decision? I've always followed what uh, felt right
0: and got me excited. It's funny, people might have viewed some of that as tough choices, but they never really felt like it to me. One door closes and another door opens and um, just leap. Okay.
1: Aside from your backyard where you go to discover new ideas, all over the world. <laughs> Clearly. Okay. I mean, you're solving a a big problem, a problem that maybe a lot of people didn't realize existed. But is there one other problem worth solving that if you get this one put to bed, you can focus on?
0: I don't know that. I mean, everyone needs to focus on it. And I would say it's fossil fuel dependency.
1: Uh, indeed, even more salient today in the geopolitical situation that we're facing. Indeed. If you could gather four people from history or from existing world to have them around for dinner, to help you plan for a better future for the planet and to solve some of the problems you think need solving, who would those people be?
0: Richard Feynman, um, Jim Henson, Ruth Bader
1: Ginsburg, Carl (laughs) Sagan. Oh, wow. (laughs) That would be a, a, a conversation worth recording. <laughs> a lot of a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Um that's I would a think great so. answer. Is there a question no one asks you that you wish they would? No, Senator, I do not recall. And a possible question to someone that maybe has a grand ambition that's being told by the people around them, forget it, that's impossible. What would your advice be for them? Don't
0: believe any of it. Go out and see the world and see how that twists
1: your ideas. I like it. The serendipitous twist in the Matrix. We finish with these questions. A spatial team have a karaoke night, obviously with immersive sound. What would you be singing? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Is there a recent TV series or film that you think people might have missed that they should see?
0: I don't know if they missed it. I I uh, I rather enjoyed the Foundation stuff that was on Apple Apple TV. TV. Yeah. Yeah. I actually never read any of the books when I have been told like. I've heard varying like, it's nothing to do with, or it's loosely based upon or, but not having any of that background. I've been enjoying that. So that's one. okay.
1: And is there a book you would like to offer our listeners that come up with good comments in the comment section or Instagram?
0: Creativity Inc. by ah, Ed Kaepernick. That's a great one.
1: Yeah. Fantastic book. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Creativity Inc. Someone had that once before, but it's a good one. Um, and the final question, who should we interview next? Ivy Ross. Ivy? Ivy Ross. Ivy
0: Ross. Oh. Could you explain who? She is currently at Google and involved with all of the design aspects of their hardware products. And I'm certainly more beyond that. But
1: Okay. Well, we'll, um, we'll follow up with an introduction once we get this episode live. Well, Michael, one thing I said, given I've got a couple of more minutes, I just think it's really interesting when you talk about your, you've gone through your sort of story arc, that when you were working on VRML, and you think about where we are today with the metaverse, Mm. and where everything's going and all the talk about it, and yet you have ended up building something that is anything but metaverse, that it is actually the meat space that's enhancing and to create engagement and bring people together which has seemed to have gone diametrically opposed to where, if you were thinking about it in a sort of a logical linear path, many would have said, well, you would be the perfect person to work on metaverse-type technologies. And when you think about books, when we talk about sci-fi and books like Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash and what he was projecting back then, I don't think you could ever have imagined... Anyone would have ever written a book that would lead us to talking about creating richer, more meaningful, more engaging, more healthier experiences in the real world. So it is, I think it's really interesting that the, where you've ended up in this interesting sort of journey.
0: Yeah, I, the VR world, I'm not sure where that's all going. I, again, it's, it's putting on gear. To go and meet people in this very artificial space. I like to meet people in the real world. And Mm -hmm. I certainly think that there are circumstances under which putting on the gear because people can be very far apart and there are ways that you can use that experience to bring people together. But, you know, I don't think Ready Player One is kind of where I ever want to be. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I do think it will be interesting to see how, I mean, I know a lot of people talking about what Apple are doing with their AR engine and what they may launch in terms of that it won't be VR, but it's gonna be way more AR integrated and related. So I think it will be interesting to see how we can navigate the physical space, but maybe with a digital layer with enhanced sound I think that's when it's going to become really okay. interesting. Yes, um, that's a space that I am very interested in. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to the next chapter and uh, and and what's emerging. I'm certainly going to be testing out your software myself and, and playing around with it, and I'll be telling other people. So we'll hopefully meet at next year's South by Southwest if you're back again. I'm afraid I missed out on it this time, but I really look forward to it. And and just thank you and, and acknowledge you for your embrace of challenges opportunities and uncertainty and for your ferocious independence because it's an inspiration hopefully to many people
0: thank you this is this has been fun and um i'm happy to help you uh along the way when you when you want to uh build some stuff Excellent. and anybody look else look forward
1: to it. all right well thank you michael and um we'll speak to you soon uh, hopefully thank you okay bye bye okay that's all for this week folks If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This is a Fabrica Collective production, so have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on the Impossible Network.